Welcome to Ontario Loud, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in the fine province of Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Sam Andrew. And I'm Alvin Tejo. Friends, today is just one of those quiet news days. Nothing big is happening in the world. <laughs> um, and I thought it might be good for us today to stop and reflect on the peace and stability that we have achieved in society. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, happy U.S. Election Day, uh, friends, and everyone who's listening. This podcast will be coming out on U.S. Election Day. We are recording uh, a day before. Um, fuck. <laughs> like, uh, how is everyone feeling? I'm just going to leave my answer as fuck. Well, we need to build that wall between the uh, Canadian and American border. Uh, I have lots of cousins who have already texted me asking me how do they become Canadian citizens. But, you know, as long as they count every ballot, which they're not going to, and as long as they don't throw out 100,000 votes in Texas, which they're going to, as long as they don't intimidate voters at the polls, uh, which they're going to, then everything's going to be fine. So, I don't know, man. You don't throw around, like, good versus evil a lot in politics without it being, you know, overstated. But this is, like, the clearest time in my lifetime where they're, like... There is a clear side here, and you just got to hope that the good guys win, you know? And it's got to be overwhelming, right? That's the thing. Like, if we can get if, – if if Joe Biden can get to 400 electoral votes without recounts, without mail-in ballots, without any other shit, then, you know, then he has no leg to stand on. The closer this gets, the harder it is for it to actually be settled in the next few days. Florida. Will Florida screw us again? I feel like – if Florida falls, the rest yeah. of the dominoes fall quickly, but I just don't have faith in Florida. I don't know why that would be, but. <laughs> Personally, uh, I'm counting out Florida uh, and listeners, don't worry, we will not be doing a deep dive into the state stuff, uh, but um, I am, I, my eyes are on Pennsylvania. I think Pennsylvania is the most demographically linked with everyone else. And that is my, that is my U.S. election hot well, take. And I think because you can see where they're sending all the resources in the last 48 hours leading up to the election, they've got every. Everyone. They got Barack Obama, they got Joe yeah. Biden, they got Kamala Harris. Everyone's in Pennsylvania for the last 48 hours, which means they 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 think there's something going on there. Or they need to hold it off or they, I don't know, you know, a bigger win or whatever it is. Absolutely. So on this day where our nerves are certainly rattled, uh, and I'm sure yours are uh, as a listener, uh, where the very future of democracy seems staying in the balance, we thought we might dial things a little bit back here and reflect on what, if any, impacts this is going to have on us here in Ontario. We thought we would take a second to talk a little bit about our own democracy, um, what we think is working, what needs more attention, and you know what we should be looking at to potentially avoid getting to the same friggin' mess the U.S. is right now. And as uh, we are all stuck uh, in our apartments, cutting our contacts by 25%, as per Teresa Tam's advice, I thought it might be a good moment to talk about some good books we can read. We're going to be spending lots more time uh, in our uh, in our household. So um, keeping it light today, we'll dive right in. It's not at all news, I think, that Ontario and Canada is super highly dependent on the United States. It is the world's largest economy. It's on our border. Y'all know the drill, but it's probably worth taking a second to reflect on the impacts that Trump has had on the Canada-U.S. relationship and how fingers friggin' crossed and toes right now a Biden administration might change or impact these things. So, um, Alvin, I'm wondering if you can uh, walk us through just a couple of the highlights uh, of that. 
Yeah, and I think just to touch on that trade relationship first, Chris, uh, what most Americans don't realize is that Canadians are Canadian companies and Canadian provinces and the country as a whole is the largest trading partner of the U.S. and of a majority of states in the U.S. And when you break that relationship down even further, Ontario is the largest trading partner to a number of states in the U.S. Uh, all, all over the place. So that relationship is incredibly important. And Trump's approach to trade has been very influential on our relationship and and the past four years. So we we know that there's been a lot of issues with with NAFTA and with tariffs, and the most ridiculous one being the tariffs charged on uh, steel and aluminum, which were based on alleged national security issues, is just ridiculous. And it's also something we're not going to see under a President Joe Biden, where the President Joe Biden might kind of be on the same page on is around Buy American, because uh, Biden has also said that they are sort of in the same space in terms of Buy American to support American companies. Joe Biden has put forward an aggressive strategy to fight climate change, uh, but this also includes canceling the Keystone XL pipeline and imposing tariffs on countries that are behind on their carbon emissions, according to the Paris agreements. So, Keystone is obviously a big piece for uh, a lot of Canadian companies, especially out out west. Uh, obviously, the federal government has bought a pipeline themselves, so that'll be interesting. Um, Canada is behind on its targets through Paris, but they have you know stated a number of things to try and get themselves on track. On defense, a lot of analysts are worried that Trump will leave NATO during his second term. Biden has said that he would strengthen NATO and he would uh, remain a part of it. It raises the question, though, around the commitment of allies to the NATO objectives, in particular, the commitment to uh, install a new multi-billion dollar radar system over the Arctic and trying to keep countries over that 2% threshold of GDP spending on defense, which Trump routinely says is a thing that uh, Canadians don't do very well. On immigration, Trump says he'll continue his policies, uh, his current policies, which including restricting the number of migrants in the U.S., ending refugee protection protections. Biden has said he would undo all of the immigration things that Trump has said, including repealing the travel ban to Muslim-majority countries and increasing the number of refugees coming into the U.S. I should note that the Canadian federal government recently announced last week that they would be increasing immigration to Canada to over 400,000 starting next year, increasing by an additional 10,000 every year after that. And that's uh, a number that we haven't seen since the early 1900s in terms of immigration to Canada. I, I think that that's a good move. Uh, we're only as strong as the immigrants we can uh, get to this country. And finally, with China, uh, Biden has promised to host a summit of democracies to discuss ways that democratic governments can and private sector companies can push back against the surging global authoritarianism that uh, is obviously led by China. So that's the high level of that. So I'll, I'll throw it back to you guys here. If if you were in the premier's office right now, how would you prepare for the many outcomes that are possible here with the election? What's what's top of mind here? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I think um, two immediate things come to mind. I think number one, how a Biden administration will change um, what was a fraught four years of U.S.-China relations, you know, kind of an emerging Cold War between those nations that shows no sign of stopping um, and how Canada clearly got caught up in it with Huawei uh, and the Michaels. And I think if you're Ontario, you're thinking, 
how to navigate an economy that is so dependent on exports uh, and not be vulnerable in um, in this growing uh, tension. And so I think if I was in the premier's office, that would probably be like stressor number one is around economic uh, diversification and um, how, to, how to work with the federal government. Um, I think number two is the administration the Biden administration clearly changes the game on climate. Um, it's going to bring the U.S. back into um, the fold and up pressure on Canada to live up to its its lofty commitments. And if you're Ontario, who basically trashed the um, climate plan uh, in Ontario, um, thinking through how to do that, they they seem to be maybe warming with this new electric vehicle um uh, commitment and they're saying the right things about climate change but the electric vehicle piece is the only substantive action to date and really no cash like there's still no rebates and um the minister of environment was actually asked about that recently at the canadian club and sort of poo-pooed the idea of of um uh rebates saying that market forces will, will bring the prices down and so um <clears throat> i think um that will become, I think, a, a, a new stress for this government uh, that they've been able to sort of get away with for the last couple of years. So I think those those would be top of mind for me. Yeah, I would agree with that, Sam. I think it's really interesting to, um, if I were in the Premier's office, I might have some low-grade worries, or even the Prime Minister's office, I some low-grade worries about areas of strategic difference, particularly between the Ford government and where a Biden administration might want to bring the world um, for all of those climate releases that Sam said. But I think a major stressor gets removed in the sense of you lose Trump's erratic behavior, which in the middle of a pandemic and supply chains and interlinked economies, like we just saw, like remember the public panic that set in when, you know, Trump stopped those shipments of N95 masks that were ordered by Canada up to Canada. Like you get this erratic, punitive decision-making that I think is really bad for business overall. And so, you know, I think it's uh, puts, it will put things globally on a better. And even if I am conservative, the stability benefits are are high. Um, I do think it's interesting, and I want to stop to reflect for a second on the the success that a protectionist trade approach has had um, as a result, or, you know, maybe coinciding with Trump or as a result of Trump. We, you know, Doug Ford has emphasized a buy Ontario policy here as well. Uh, we have Aaron O'Toole saying that he supports private sector unions and uh, really putting a big emphasis on local manufacturing. And I think that that is, it's part of a global trend we're seeing. It used to be that there was kind of a liberal conservative consensus with NDP and unions sort of sitting on the outside on protectionism. Now it really seems like there is a part of the NDP coalition and part of the conservative coalition that are really rallied around promoting leaders through conservative parties that are uh, a little bit more protectionist in their approach to trade. And I think that that is going to have profound implications. My last point on this is that I have seen some of the CBC. CBC is out there advertising its coverage for election night. And they're, you know, talking about the Canadian impact of everything. And I just know, because they've already previewed it, that they're going to have some people on worrying about Keystone XL and, you know, all of the energy implications and, you know, this being a big political problem. And I have no fucking time in the world for fretting about that kind of stuff. Because if you are, if you think that the biggest stake for Canada in this election is a pipeline, 
um, and not you know, like our global health. I, you know, I just think that it's like, like I, I, I don't know what world that perspective lives in, but you know, I will not be watching. Uh, or I will be very frustrated when I see it inevitably on the Canadian coverage. I, w- I want to talk about the politics about this for a little bit because I think one of the lessons we learned about 2016 presidential election is the 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 room for populism. And the message that Donald Trump was hitting, especially on uh, on the economic side and how people were, were feeling uh, left out. Right. And and that populism, I would argue, fueled a lot of what Donald, oh, not Donald Trump, what Doug Ford was talking about in the 2018 provincial election. And he obviously touched on a nerve that that many Ontarians believe in and, and are concerned about, as well as Canadians across uh, across the country, uh, as evidenced by a poll that came out of Abacus Data just this weekend that showed 25 percent, 25 percent, one out of four Canadians would vote for Donald Trump given the chance. Are you fucking kidding me? Who the hell are these people? I don't. And somebody was like, oh, you just live in the GTA bubble. I'm like, no, I've been across this entire country and I've talked to tons and tons of people, especially in Ontario. And I mean, maybe they're hiding it, but they they don't see a problem with his politics and they and they want to keep you know advocating for them moving forward. So and they don't all live in Alberta or Saskatchewan. There's obviously some people here. And up until recently, uh, Doug Ford was a fan of Donald Trump. Until he used those protections, um, sort of against uh, against us, right? So now you have Doug Ford talking about uh, you know how important it is for us to be able to provide um, the services and the materials that we need to survive a pandemic or whatever it is moving forward. And and I don't think any Ontarians would disagree with that. But where do you feel that the sort of populist message, especially the one on the right that tries to aim at the sort of less educated that aims at people's feelings of, you know, being left out and, and, and not served by their governments. Where do you feel that that has room to potentially continue uh, in Ontario or Canadian politics moving forward? I mean, <laughs> I, I think we have a tendency in Ontario and Canada to look at that 25% and say like, look at a glass half full, like, oh, it's only 25% in the States. It's like 42 to 45%, depending on what polls you're looking at, um, of people that are sort of supportive of the Trump policy uh, and political approach. But yeah, it's still a lot. And it still reminds us, I think there's room for it to, there's room for it to flourish here. And, you know, there'll be people who, and who are currently trying to adopt that model. Um, and I think it will, it will have some resonance. I mean, you can see Aaron O'Toole when he's talking about, we need more private sector unions, uh, and when he made that, I, I thought it was a really interesting statement because that is him sort of directly targeting places like Oakville, uh, Southwest Ontario, places that aren't, you know, downtown Toronto, but are not traditional, super conservative strongholds where economic shifts have left people in the lurch. I mean, we have a, a trend a largely service trending economy away from manufacturing a little bit. We have some growth in manufacturing in some sectors, but you know, you might argue not a very, not all the educational pipelines uh, and tools we need to, you know, get those sectors sort of properly resourced. And I think that puts pressure on a lot of families that, you know, don't necessarily see themselves represented in the political class, see themselves represented in the media. And it creates a, uh, a frustration. And um, you know, I, I see Aaron O'Toole, directly trying to target those voters and i see uh doug ford doing it perhaps a little bit less so uh that's actually a good leading question alvin uh because 
one of the most troubling things that we've seen play out over the last several years is the erosion of democratic norms and standards in the United States. Um, we've seen things like the targeting and vilification of the nonpartisan civil service, the use of law enforcement agencies to target political opponents, systemic voter disenfranchisement, widespread toleration of corruption. Uh, this is stuff that we expect to see on authoritarian governments, but not mature democracies. Um, so on this day, I thought it might be worth uh, turning the lens on ourselves a little bit um, and, you know, reflecting each on something that we think is working well up here uh, and is worth being vigilant about and something that we think we need to be way more vigilant about and need detention. And it might be a risk point um, lest, you know, we find a demagogue being popular here in a couple of years. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to start. I think I have a huge amount of appreciation that there's a multi-partisan uh, consensus, and uh, that includes the conservative uh, parties in Canada, um, to not undermine our uh, election authorities, elections Canada, elections Ontario, um, that the voter registration process is so uh, frictionless uh, re- relative to, to lots of other um, uh, jurisdictions that there's relatively a political, you know, riding distribution processes. These are all foundations, as you say, to to a functioning uh, democracy. And I think what we've watched over the last four years is how quickly those, you know, they're human norms, right? They can be undermined really easily. Um, and so I think we should all be thankful that no party here in Canada or Ontario uh, really tries uh, to do that, because I think we've seen how how quickly it can happen. So, on the on the flip side, in terms of I think what we need to to work on, and I mean we've talked about it on, on this podcast before, and I don't think it's that original, but just how much news consumption and political consumption is now not through uh, mainstream media like you know TV newscast newscasts or or newspapers, but is is through social media is you know, it's a fundamentally different way of consuming the news, right? And there's much less control um, that an editor has over over the filtering, over the algorithms. And um, at the end of the day, that is, it can undermine, you know, our sovereignty when we have American platforms basically dictating how Canadians receive their information. And so the the issues are, are numerous around disinformation, hate speech, um, harassment of of politicians um, and others. Um, And so super challenging for a government to regulate. You know, you don't regulate freedom of expression lightly, um, but lots of smart people are thinking about practical solutions to these these challenges. And I think um, the government has taken baby steps, has indicated that they're concerned, but you don't really get the sense that they have bold ideas on how to regulate these platforms. And I think in many ways, it's these platforms are beyond the reach of just Canada. Um, It requires a a global approach. And I think Canada has tried to play a leadership role in coordinating that with with like minded jurisdictions in Europe. Um, But there's so much more to do. And I think it's it's urgent work, because I think, as you see playing on the US, the power of especially Facebook's platforms um, to, to organize people into chaos is um could absolutely happen here um and already has in some ways and so yeah that's my that's my challenge i mean there's a lot on 
what you were touching on there, Sam, around foreign ownership of, of Canadian newspapers, um, that the content that people are, are, are getting and how much of it is controlled by, by foreign entities. And that's not necessarily even with a, uh, with a villainous sort of lens on it, right? Like no one is yet, as we know of, intentionally trying to disrupt uh, Canadian politics, at least not in as an overt way as they were doing in the in the US. I think there's a lot of disinformation out there. Um, the Prime Minister was talking about the limits on freedom of speech. And I was looking at the comments on Twitter, and most of them were Americans or Russian bots just sort of you know, fu- fueling the fire of that of that debate, and you could definitely see that spiraling sort of out of control here in Canada. I, I think one of the things that has really given me a lot of concern, especially watching the American system sort of decay into what it's become, is that for the most part, most people in the U.S. and, and pundits have always said, "Don't worry, that'll never happen," because something or someone will step in and prevent that from happening. And and most recently it's been around the what if Donald Trump refuses to leave office? And we're like, well then the government will step in. And people are saying, but he is the government. And you know, what happens if like who's physically going to remove him? The Secret Service who's supposed to protect him until noon on uh, January 20th? Um the you know chairman of the Joint Chiefs of the staff and people are just throwing names out there because these are conventions that um, someone like Donald Trump has rebuked and just said, why? It's not written down. I can do whatever the fuck I want. And so my concern around this topic, Chris, is around how many more constitutional conventions exist in Canada. So many times we just generally accept the person or the party that is going to be able to form the government will form the next government. Everyone else concedes. There is always a you know peaceful transfer of power, um, and we figure it out in in Parliament, and and we figure it out at the at the ballot box. And there's never been any real issues with that in the 152 three years of our of our democracy. But there are examples where it's almost broken, and there are I think uh, huge areas of of vulnerability that if you got someone like Donald Trump in in those roles could do whatever the hell they wanted to right and and so the two examples i want to bring up is um a prime minister uh, king and uh, the lord bing of vimy who was governor general in 1926 who refused uh, the prime minister's call to uh, dissolve parliament and call an election because the prime minister uh, didn't give the opportunity to the leader of the opposition who actually won more seats um, to do it. And so the governor general said, no, I'm, I'm going to do that. That was a constitutional crisis early in in uh, in confederation. And more recently, Prime Minister Harper decided to prorogue government for several months in 2008 leading into 2009 when it was clear that all the opposition leaders were going to bring him down in a minority government. And the governor general at the time took a different stance. She followed the prime minister's advice, um, but could very easily also have not and and given the opportunity for the opposition parties to form government. So because those things aren't codified and because so many of our um, how we transfer power and how we conduct elections are just constitutional conventions, it, it, it's always made me a little anxious about what would actually happen if somebody decided to parole government for four years? What, like, how would that stop you, right? I mean, in the constitution it only says you have to have an election every five years, right? You could change the electoral system. You could change who's, um, you know, how difficult it would be to get people to vote. We don't have 
that sort of voter suppression here in Canada the way they do in the U.S., but that's just because the conservatives or whoever else wants to do the oppressing hasn't thought that that would be a thing they could do yet, right? What's stopping you? The charter does say that legislature has to, and the, or the House has to sit every year just as one point of order, but I agree with everything else you said. Sure, pirogue, pirogue <laughs> and then run for a day and then pirogue again for the next 364 <laughs> days. The things I want to see improved are around leaders, especially, right? In the UK, you have the 1922 committee for the Conservative Party to you know, potentially recall the, the leader of, of that party. You have mechanisms that exist in multiple parties uh, across uh, parliamentary systems uh, around the world. We don't really have those in Canada. Michael Chong tried to do something that allowed that, but parties had to voluntarily adopt those types of things. I think the biggest problem is that Canadians don't really um, invest in their in their democracy and don't understand when things are being challenged like this. And we need to be more vigilant in talking about it and educating people about it so that when they do get taken advantage of, people will stand up and, and fight against it and not let it happen. And I would actually even just like double down on that uh, worry for a moment to say like, when I was learning in like civics class in university about or like political science university about the benefits of the U.S. system versus the Canadian system, you know, the U.S. system is messier, but it's because Congress has more independence. And one of the hallmarks of the Trump era has been how the Republicans have largely fallen in line with what Trump has wanted to do. And that isn't necessarily a given, but like the strength of party loyalty and fear of being primaried and stuff like that has really driven behavior. And like, that is worse here. We have, you know, a fused executive and legislature where like the prime minister's office is extremely powerful. And if a demagogue were elected, I have no doubt that we would see, you know, it would, uh, it would be high, more irregular and require more personal and political risk for a cabinet minister to say break from the prime minister. You almost never see that in Canada. Um, you never see people to really try to strike independent tones. And we have very few checks on the authority of the executive in Canada. And so it's definitely a big, a big thing we need to uh, reason why we need to worry about democracy um, here. And it's a part of our institution we should pay more attention to. Um, I had a bunch of stuff here about the Senate. You hate the Senate. I, I, I mean, I do. I do. It's 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 like I was re- last week when like that Trump that the senator re- like that senator it like basically donated to Trump and then the president of the conservative caucus and Senate endorsed Trump. It was a reminder that like a nobody has any idea who these people are because they're sort of like in a lot of cases they are you know party elders they are you know influential people who are supported um but they are unelected and then they're for life and it's just by convention that they don't do things like historically they've only ever sort of rejected or slowed down two bills per year but that's been increasing in recent years um and the reason we have not uh, adopted the united nations declaration on the rights of indigenous people in canada is because the senate was uncomfortable and slowed it down until the election and uh, despite the fact that it is a elected party commitment of the liberal party to the government tried to implement it it was a bipartisan ndp bill that the liberals signed on to to adopt un drip the senate slowed it down and we don't have it and it was put up at risk in an election um when that was clearly not the will of the people and so you know lots of things to complain about the senate hate the senate we should abolish it Fun fact, people didn't like the Senate back in 1867. So this has been a debate our entire democracy as to why we have this body. The 25% like, because I was thinking about Bobby Orr this weekend and and his endorsement. And I'm just like, when it's a poll, you kind of think like, well, 
how many of these people are just conservatives who believe in like small government, low taxes. And so like you have to support that party, even though they wouldn't practically vote that way, maybe if they were forced. But like when you're out there endorsing people, like taking out fucking newspaper ads like Bobby Orr, like I'm just like, forget about the policies for a second. Like how can you kids in cages, Muslim ban, destroying democracy, adulterer, in the pocket of Russia, like it just hit after hit after hit where it's just like, just take a fucking like step back for this election cycle. Like I just, I can't even put my self in that headspace. Like I like it literally try and I'm like, no. Yeah. This week we learned that Bobby Orr has no idea what a good teammate is because he called Trump a good teammate. Like, I don't even think Republicans would use that phrasing. Like it's so fucked. Anyway, sorry. I, I, I'm, I'm, an, I'm riled up. I am. I feel like I'm on the edge. I've canceled Bobby Orr. That took a lot uh, from me. Um, and also, you know, Halloween's passed and gift giving season is approaching. So I thought it might be worthwhile to just talk a little bit about books. You know, hopefully we all get a chance to relax a little bit in November uh, from all this worry and maybe uh, bring back the concept of loud reads a little bit and, uh, you know, uh, talk about books that we have, uh, we might recommend our, our listeners read, um, you know, sort of like, I'm imagining kind of like an Oprah's list style thing, um, just, you know, for Ontario policy nerds. So, so I, this isn't that recent, but I read Steve Pakin's uh, Bill Davis um, bi- biography. It's long, but for those who are interested in Ontario politics, which hopefully most of our audience is, if you've made it this far, uh, it's a really interesting look back at that era um with lots of you know parallels and and um differences to today's era and so if you're an ontario politics nerd it's it's worth checking out fun fun story about bill davis i commissioned the only bust of him that exists out of uh out of stone for the release of his book and the dedication of of the uh bill davis campus in brampton and i got to visit his house which is if you know where brampton is and have you been to Brampton? <laughs> it's right across from Gage Park. I'm not telling you where he lives, but like he lives right there and he overlooks the park. It's unbelievable. Like you would have had to live there for the last 50 years to get like a spot like that. It's it's phenomenal. And his study is just amazing and full of like Ontario history and trivia. And was it was it was really quite something. Um my book is actually, I mean, I don't want to go delve into sort of the field of self-help, but it is a bit of a self-help um book where it talks about transitions. It's called Transitions, Making Sense of Life's Changes. And it was gifted to me by, and I'm making another Sheridan reference here, the, the former president of Sheridan College, um, as like a as like a book to look at when you're going through significant transitions in your life. And I think so many of us are right now in 2020 with COVID, with you know reimagining where our place is in society, trying to decide if our career is the way it is. And so many people have gone back to school. A lot of people have made drastic life decisions about life partners and and what they want to do with the rest of their life. So I, I I recommend this book after reading it because it it just really helped me sort of put things into perspective for myself and 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 give you a good um a good look at, you know, how to deal with those transitions that come at you in life. And the fact that you're always going through transition in some in some way or or form and you might not always realize it. It's made by it's written by William Bridges and uh we'll we'll link it in the on the Twitter 
and stuff like that on the website. Absolutely. Does it cover the uh, the psychological impact of uh, public health advice that transitions <laughs> from uh, week to week around public holidays? <laughs> Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a chapter there specifically for COVID. No, there isn't. But uh, no, that sounds it, that sounds awesome. Still- Actually, like I, you know, um, I feel like this year I have uh, uh, tried to sort of blend my like I brought a little bit more of that kind of self help and self care reading into my normal diet of political books. Um, and uh, I'm reading a book right now that kind of actually has uh, its toes in both caps called uh, Brave in the Wilderness. It's by Brene Brown, who's like a very successful, famous sort of pop psychologist, uh, but like with a lot of hard science behind her work. And it's great because it's kind of about the squishy concept of belonging and feeling how like how you belong in society. But um it, it was surprised me when I read it uh, about how political the book actually is. And, you know, it talks, brings a lot of neuroscience and psychological research to bear behind, you know, the partisan sorting the, uh, to Sam's point earlier, like the effect that social media is having. And actually she makes a case that engagement with social media is driving a sense of loneliness. And like, you know, people who measure loneliness have seen an increase in loneliness on the rise, which has all kinds of negative outcomes in terms of how we engage with politics. Um, And so, yeah, it's this kind of interesting encapsulation of our current democratic crisis. I mean, she's sort of writing from the US context, so it's really potent for her um, as a bit of a crisis of the human spirit. And talk specifically about the emotional skills that you need to overcome that as like a, as a person. And, you know, even as a person who like produces a podcast that tries to engage politically, it's been really instructive because, you know, there are points and like, you know, where I just like want to scream into the ether and, you know, I get so mad at the, like the others that are out there, but she has all kinds of great chapters. One of the chapters is called hating is hard up close, move in. One of them is about, um, you know, um, you know, the importance of having a soft front, but a strong backbone. Um, so yeah, a great book. I found it very uplifting, but also, you know, engaged with the way the world currently is. And, um, you know, would recommend anyone read it. Um, a friend lent it to me and I've, uh, you know, Brené Brown is a, uh, a very, very good writer. Um, it's also short too. It's like, it's like 200, 200 pages. So it, you can get through it. Uh, you can get through it like in a weekend, no problem. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics and public policy. Ontario Loud is hosted by Sam Andrew, Alexi White, Alvin Tejo, Karima Tower Kapoor, and I'm Chris Martin. We have an amazing research intern in Harmon Mundy. If you have any thoughts about what you heard, you can get at us on Twitter at, at OntarioLoud or go to OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com. Ontario Loud is recorded on the traditional territories of many Indigenous nations uh, in Toronto, uh, the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat. We acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Ontario Loud is also recorded uh, in Vancouver on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh nations. Unceded territory was never given to settlers, it was stolen, and continues to be occupied and governed by settlers today. So it is important to recognize this history, and even on a podcast where you might be listening somewhere else uh, to acknowledge the, the history of the land that we're on. All right, that's it for us this week. Stay safe, and we'll see you next Tuesday.